last time, because we missed because of St. Anne's, uh, we discussed scripture and its role in our life and had the handout from... Sorry, if I'm going to go back. I told you. Discussing the role of scripture in the life of an Orthodox Christian, how we approach scripture, how it forms the way that we think, services, etc. We're now, we've, this is the books, I know some of you already know this, Uh, right now we've been jumping around in these books a little bit because I chose a particular um, way to go through these books. Now we are in the spirituality volume. If you really want to, this is all online. Uh, I'm mostly saying this for your benefit, Savannah, but it's not bad to review anyways, right? Uh, Did folks, were they able to read for this section on spirituality? Mm -hmm. Uh, So this, uh, if you want to read the church history section, there are books here if you just generally like reading anyways. Uh, and you want to kind of know what happened vaguely because it's not super deep because we're talking about 2,000 years of church history. If you want to know a little bit more, get better than a Wikipedia entry, but I'm not going to tell you it's going to be much better than a Wikipedia entry, but it at least gives you a kind of rough lay of the land, kind of like the Orthodox Church by Callistos Ware will kind of give you a history of uh, Orthodoxy, its development, because most of us having... Besides you, everybody basically grew up in the U.S. and were formed by U.S. education system, right? We don't really talk about anything east of, like, Germany <laughs> unless it's, like, World War II, and then we start talking about it, right? At least that's the way I, like, we do. If you hit something, it's like, there's the Dark Ages, and then it's like, then there was light, <laughs> and then there's the French Revolution, and we don't really even talk about the French Revolution. And then there's, like, and if you even define, like, constitutional monarchy, and there's England, and the, and then it's just kind of this, the Napoleon, nobody really knows why, but they're Napoleon, and then, okay. So, a lot of church history for the Orthodox Church happens in a part of the world. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm going to make it move. I don't know how it works. I do. So, I don't want to rotate just on my backside. There we go. Is that going to be helpful? That's better. I'll try to not be taking up half of it. So, if you want to know more about church history, go for it. So, in talking about Orthodox spirituality, first, what do you think of the word spirituality? When when somebody says spirituality, what do you think of? Positive, negative, neutral? It's usually used in an inarticulate way. So it's not very articulate. What, I, I think I know what you mean. What can you articulate the inarticulate? <laughs> well, the, the, the phrase uh, uh, "spiritual but not religious" is kind of like I, I have a relationship with a higher power, but I'm not going to define or talk anything. About I haven't filled in the blank. I'm kind of open, <laughs> which I typically find that means like I do yoga or like like essential oils or crystals or something. Uh, I don't like organized religion, even though you will buy from all sorts of organizations that want to sell you these things. But anyways, uh, there is in spirituality, when, when you think in Christian terms, what do you think of, of spirituality? Like the, the mystical experience of the faith, the union with God. Oh, all right. A good definition of spirituality. 
When you think of orthodox spirituality, what do you think of? I think of being disciplined. Disciplined? As opposed to undisciplined, right? Or As just kind of... to, like, the hyper-emotionalism that I feel like I experienced in, in Protestantism. Mm -hmm. Like, this is a much more reverent, reverent, disciplined spirituality that's still mystical but has more definition. Mm -hmm. Guidelines? Yes. A roadmap, as it were? Specific practices. Specific practices. So if you were to ask, part of this is because the fact that you guys are sitting in here means that you are at least aware of orthodox things, reading about orthodox things, coming to liturgy. So it's going to be a little bit different. If, if we were sitting at a Starbucks and I just started going around to people at a Starbucks saying, what do you think spirituality is? We're going to get a lot of answers, right? And I think that general, this kind of vagueness of like, there's something out there. I don't really know what it is per se, or, but it almost always is the Christian God without the specificity of the Christian God. The God is good. When I die, I'm going to heaven. Like all of these Christian things that are, but also like stripped of all of the specifics of Christianity. So Jesus, if it is Jesus, Jesus is kind of like an avatar really, or like he's a nice guy, but not really a familiarity what he's actually said or like what the, I say the crux of the face, faith the cross, right? That's where the crux of the matter, like the, that is where that term comes from, right? The cross. Uh, there is, for orthodoxy, something that I think most people experience it, so that disciplined is one aspect of it. I would also say embodied spirituality, as opposed to we don't just kind of sit around and cogitate together. That's a lot of people's spiritual experiences is either emotional experiences or on one hand, or not to like say you guys are the emotional and you guys are the intellects, but like, or like an intellectual thing. I'll give you an example. When I was growing up in most Protestant churches, what was the spirituality? We had singing and kind of worship. That was kind of like the, our emotional side of things. And then we all sat down and had Bible study where everybody shared their opinions about what they thought about what the scripture said, right? And you'd sit and listen to a sermon for an hour and a half. If you think my homilies are long, you should go to some Protestant churches. <laughs> uh, we, hour, hour and a half. I grew up hearing hour, hour and a half sermons. Uh, I remember after becoming Orthodox for a while, you kind of forget because you get so used to being Orthodox, you forget what other forms are. I remember going to a Presbyterian service and just being like, the sermon was basically an hour-long Bible class. Where people, it was a lecture. Uh, Orthodox spirituality is it is liturgical. It is ascetical, as in there are specific practices that we do. We're about to enter into a fast, so what we put into our bellies, what we consume, uh, there is. It's more than just that with ascetical. Uh, there is specific prayers and attention to prayer. Uh, there is attending of services, of the coming together of the saints and church. And so there's liturgical, there's ascetical, there's the ecclesial, uh, and there's a dogmatic, that our spirituality is based in the actual dogmas of the church. By dogmas, is like specific beliefs. Jesus Christ is in the incarnate God. He is Lord. So because he's took on my flesh, uh, he has given me the ability to receive the Spirit. That's how St. Athanasius, he took on flesh so that we could receive the Spirit. Uh, this is why, if you would look through these definitions, 
because basically the section on spirituality is Father Thomas basically says spirituality is everything he doesn't mean spirituality is everything in the sense that like every single thing that you do is spiritual he's more saying everything that is one aspect will happen with that everything in our life should be spiritualized now spiritual I think a lot of us when we think of spiritual we think of maybe monasteries of the alone with the alone right like we're off kind of in, uh, interiorized even today how Jesus retreated right there was a retreat from the world and from the busyness did that mean he exited the world no he exited the world and then he returned ready to actually engage with the world and our spirituality uh, a lot of spirituality kind of it makes us feel like it's not actually integrated with our life but orthodox spirituality the fact that we're supposed to be continuously praying this is something that's not just here and I light a candle and I kiss an icon and I smell incense this is like when you're doing the dishes <laughs> when you are cooking your eggs in the morning right when you're having to do the laundry, when you are wiping that bottom of that baby <laughs> or picking up the mess that they leave behind, those are all places of prayer, of being able, like Christ, to be able to respond to those things. Our relationships with each other. Why does scripture constantly talk about our patience, our forbearance with each other, our forgiving of each other? This is all spirituality. And so the real core, if you were to kind of boil down what Father Thomas does, he kind of takes and goes through these terms. Like, who is God? So let's do the same thing. If you say what spirituality is, this is kind of amorphous thing where we kind of feel something transcendent, but basically we're enshrining ourselves in what we desire or self-care. But this, so the next question comes, who is God? If, if, you, if somebody's asked you when you were growing up, so it doesn't mean like what you think now, but when you're growing up and somebody asks you, who is God, how would you respond? <coughs> you would have an interesting answer. I'm just saying he's not real. He's not real. Category error. Category error. <laughs> Big man in the sky. Big man in the sky. Even for Christians, you're growing up in the church. Like, as a kid, I thought this. And nobody was telling me this, but it's just kind of like what you get because the way that we talk, it's like there's a bearded guy in the sky. I can go twice as high. It's in a, <laughs> Take a look. It's in a book. book. Am I too old? No. Are you guys no, too young? No, no, no. Okay. okay. <laughs> 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 need, you, I know. You need to enculturate him on that one. Uh, it's all over YouTube now. So, because uh, even like, why didn't Father Daniel do that? Okay. Um, the, the reality for a lot of us is I mean, it's just in our culture, right? That spirituality thing. Like, if I'm basically good, and most everyone, unless they're Adolf Hitler, is good, then we're all, when we die, we're just all going to go to heaven because, duh, that's what we assume if you're this kind of broad spirituality that is a very American. If you go to other places, they don't think like that because they don't have remnants of Protestantism that's just kind of in the culture. Uh, there was some scholars uh, a few years ago, it's probably been decades now, they came up when they were talking with teens about who they thought God was, and drawing from all that information, uh, this is also from churches generally, they came up with this way of talking about what most of these teenagers and young adults thought. God is somebody that I go to when there's trouble. 
I pray to God for things that I want. God wants me to be my best self. Uh, and that, again, that kind of, if I'm basically good, everything is going to be fine. And these are Christians. These are kids who are catechized in churches. They call this moralistic therapeutic deism. God is not actually active. He's somewhere else. Moralistic because it's like, if I'm, and it's not really specific, so like, if I'm good, then everything's going to be fine. And let's, how do we define good, right? Uh, you know, I don't shoot people, <laughs> therefore I'm good. It doesn't matter how impatient, angry, etc. that I get, I'm good. Uh, and then, that, so that deistic is like, God is somewhere up there. He's not actually active and present in my life. In therapeutic, what do you think the therapeutic aspect of that is? God basically exists as my Santa Claus, or my, my personal, like, everything that God wants is, oh, imagine that, it's already what I want. And no matter what I do, God has already said, yes. You go, my child. Be the beautiful butterfly that you are, right? I'm not denigrating. Everyone is a unique individual, right? (laughs) Everyone is special in the eyes of God and loved by God. But this takes all these truths of God and what Scripture teaches, and it, like, takes it to a caricature and leaves around all the other stuff that God, yes, God wants us to be good, but his definition of good is defined by the cross and by Jesus, right? (laughs) His definition of therapy means, and this is where Christian, like what Orthodox is now, the therapy that God provides for us is again, the cross, that we're going to die to ourselves, that with that impatience is something that's going to have to die in us, that that anger that we struggle with is going to have to die, that lust, that greed, that envy, that those things need to die so that we can actually become like God because God is not somewhere hanging out in the skies trimming his beard he's actually present with us ask like he doesn't say like jump this high and I'll kind of watch you he's actually come in the flesh presented everything for us given us everything given us the church the sacraments to be able to live into the truth of who Jesus Christ is so the next question after who is God is typically like, who is Jesus Christ I think if we keep going down this line it's very easy to say like Jesus Christ is basically Muslims will say he's a prophet he has something to say. He says good things. Uh, there are many people, I would say generally kind of, I'll say polite society, or I'll just say like contemporary liberal society. By liberal, I don't, I'm not talking about Democrats or something like that. I just mean the general cultural milieu that we have democratic liberal society, right? You do you, I'll do me, whatever. It doesn't matter, right? Uh, Jesus has nice things to say, but he's kind of like Buddha, right? He's a talisman, or like he's present, but he's not actually the Jesus of the Gospels. He's not actually the Jesus that the church presents as being fully God and fully man. Uh, but that's nice if you like him. Then when we get to the Holy Spirit, this is where we get into all sorts of trouble. When, what? Who is the Holy Spirit? I'm going to say what. We've already <laughs> talked about Trinity and all this, but all of the, the reason why Hopko is kind of going all over this is because God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all intimately integrated into our struggle. Our spirituality is adherence to the image that we were made in. You and I were, all of us were made in the image of God. The problem is, this thing about like a mirror, it's gotten really dirty, and we can't see, God can't see himself in the mirror anymore. And what we need to be doing is cleaning up the mirror 
right? So repentance, this is where the cross is, dying to ourself. Uh, repentance is cleaning off that mirror. And that is why we need uh, our conformity to Jesus Christ, that we start to live and act like Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that we live and act like God, but that we imitate him because that's what we were made to do. That was the point of our existence. And the Holy Spirit is given to us in order for that to occur. Were there any other... So he goes through and he kind of defines man, sin, the devil, world and flesh, church, sacraments, the kingdom of God. There Are those are any of those that struck you, had you scratching your head, or that you have a question about? We've kind of hit a lot of these topics from, uh, from different angles. So getting really specific, uh, well, I would say the whole, when he defines, I think what he's trying to do in all of this section is kind of get at what our role is. So we've talked about church, like we've done the liturgy, we've done uh, a little bit of a talk about the Trinity, we've talked about prayer, we've talked about obeying the commandments of God. Uh, and now I think the big part that he's trying to do in spirituality is like, what does a human do? And our basic struggle is the flesh and the spirit. Right? So when he starts talking about the flesh, what is he talking about? Because Paul talks like this, right? This is in scripture, this language of flesh and spirit. What, is, what does he mean by flesh? This, our desires. So does he mean this? He probably means this, but... <laughs> does he mean our body? Is our battle against our body? No. Our self-destructive impulses. Our self-destructive impulses. You said our desires. Carnal desires. There's a nice Pauline word. Yeah. Sin nature. Sin nature. You grew up Baptist. Well, I mean, you know. The reason... All right. The reason I'm... That does that phrase doesn't actually show up in scripture anywhere. Okay. What what sin nature comes from is the NIV. Sorry, this is a very particular. I, I love that you said sin nature. It comes up as something that they translated sarks from mm -hmm. flesh, and they translate NIV as sin nature. So, what sin nature? If if we were to rightly understand, what does it mean that we have sinfulness or sin nature? That we're born in sin? Our fallen state. Our fallen state, our carnal desires, the things that we are struggling with, right? That is what Paul means by flesh, right? So in the NIV, it gets translated as sin nature. Uh, what it is is something that is not really us. And what I mean by that is something that we struggle with, but it's not original to us. It is not something... It's like a, a parasite on us, right? It is something, if man is going towards God and actually comes into fullness and reality, if man tangled in sin, drowning in sin, he's going into dissolution. He's coming into, like, unreality, right? So sin is something that is just like, I mean, we experience this, what sin is like. We even phenomenologically experience this. When we're struggling with sin, there is something about it that's like death bearing in us. I mean, this is how Paul talks about it. Those who basically not worship but serve the devil, serve sin, their wages are death, right? 
Or it's, so it's, there's the flesh aspect, or the spirit, where we serve and are slaves to Christ, and therefore we receive the fruit, which is what Christ has given to us of life. Were you going to say something that I yeah. cut you off? Sorry. I cannot recall exactly where, but there seems to be some verses where Apostle Paul talks about uh, like the flesh sides, not directly connected to sin, but to just our inherent incapacity to be like God. Like for example, I'm thinking about a Christian that tries to be good on his own strength, for example. Like, could it also be the flesh? Yeah, so the thing with sin and the state that we're in, and this would be the case no matter what, and this is, I think, what's it's kind of complicated about this. Orthodox thought, the fathers, the way they think, they are, there's definitely the sin problematic. But something that is constitutive of us that like is the baseline there is the sin aspect in that we're going to die and that what Jesus comes is he comes and he solves sin and he kills death right so that we can live even underneath that is just the fact that we're created we always need God so there is this kind of ontological ontological is a big word it basically means like there is a difference we're not God we're created. All of us are creatures. He is the only uncreated. Angels are created. Everything outside of him is created being. We all absolutely depend upon him. We don't exist without the creator. So on one aspect, you're right. Like Sin is there and is something that uh, disables us and is something that we struggle with and is something that we have to have God invade that space kill it for us because there are certain sins that are like shackles and addictions that we have that the fathers are very specific about these things like you when we fast when we pray when we keep vigil when we are striving to keep the commandments all of those things are things where we're showing up uh it's like i'm trying to think of a good metaphor the fathers will use this metaphor of asceticism of um it's like when you're going to have a garden do you just go out and find some land and just throw your seeds on the ground? No. You're going to set, you're going to stake it out. If you've got deer, you're going to like put every possible imaginable like fortress setting <laughs> for the garden. There's deer all over Oak Ridge. Um, <laughs> bears. Uh, I haven't seen any bears of where are. For you, you got bears, but there's deer. Like They literally walked across the road yesterday, like three of them, um, right in front of my house. Um, you have to till the ground. You have to prepare the soil. You have to water it. You have to attend to it, right? That's all the things that we do. We come to church. We say our prayers. Like we, we, when we are suff- you know, struggling with something, we go to God. But it is God himself who sends the sun, who lets the rain. Like he's the one who actually gives the increase. I'm using this from Paul in a little bit of a different way. Like we plant seeds. When God can plant a seed, it's God who's going to make things grow right so there is for us the need of the intervention of God into and the things that we can't on our own we cannot save ourselves we can't defeat death Christ had to defeat death for us Adam got us in this mess Adam and Eve got us into this mess and we're all going to be saved because of the second Adam who's got us out of this mess. 
Does that make sense? We use a lot of metaphors to talk about these things. <laughs> so I can understand it getting lost a little bit in some of the metaphors. Uh, one of the things of, uh, I like where the direction that Father Thomas goes is he wants to get specific about what the struggle is. And if we're struggling with the flesh. We're looking at what the spiritual life, what are the, the fruits, like what seeds do I need to plant? What bushes, you know, vines do I need to attend to to bring forth fruit of the Spirit, right? And where Father Thomas Hopko goes is to the Beatitudes. If, for the, those who were Christian before encountering orthodoxy, what were the Beatitudes to you? Does everybody know what I mean when I say the Beatitudes? Mm-hmm. Blessed are the poor in spirit for those of the people of heaven, all, all of those from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5. Mm-hmm. And Luke. It's in Luke as well, but a little bit different in Luke. But. Do what? I mean, he also loves in Luke. Luke has like the four good and the four bads. Right, right. They're almost like Proverbs. Like, I grew up kind of yeah. um, looking at them as a kind of short, applicable phrases. Yeah. An opportunity to argue what meek means. So that that actually brings up just an interesting thing. The way I grew up, there these were like talked about in this kind of like <laughs> we should be like this, but then to actually fill it in like kind of like what is meekness and then everyone kind of argues about meekness, but like you walk away and it's like I still don't think I understand what meekness is. Uh <laughs> You need a portrait of the spiritual life. There are those who walk around. This is very popular in Lutheran and Reform circles to look at the Beatitudes and say, these are the impossible virtues of a Christian that you can't accomplish. Christ did it, but you can't. It's it's like law gospel stuff. I I don't want to get too sidetracked into this. But I like what you said about Proverbs. Uh, These are... By the way, Father Thomas Hopko and the tradition of the fathers, like, this is a portrait of what someone in the kingdom of heaven is like. They are poor in spirit. They mourn. They are meek. We'll talk about meekness. So we'll come away, hopefully, with a better idea of meekness. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They are merciful. They're pure in heart. They're peacemakers. They expect and are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And they are joyful. So, to get specific about what Orthodox spirituality is, Father Thomas Hopko focuses on the Beatitudes, right? This is a portrait of what somebody who is rooted in Christ, who is striving after spiritual things, as in looking to God, uh, rooting out those vices and trying to live into what the kingdom life is like. This is what it is to be a Christian, right? So, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean, but poor in spirit? Well, what does it mean first? I'm, I'm assuming here, a beatitude. Like, what, what does it mean to be blessed? To be blessed? Like, yeah. So a lot of it, like a lot of translations will say something like happy, but it means something more than that. Like, though these are ones that are how should I say this the righteous 
the ones who have found it sounds kind of trite but like the meaning of life I'm trying to mm-hmm. come at it from different ways like they understand and they are blessed because they've this is the way reality works <coughs> so they are blessed yes is it joy in the Holy Spirit would you say that that's blessed for the Makarios, uh, so the Greek is the Makarios. There is this. Yeah, I think that's fine. I think there is some aspect here that it is the right way. It, the Old Testament scriptures, you read the Psalter, there's like, blessed is the man who is not. Right? Right. There is this sense of like, they have found the truth of reality. They are blessed by God. What's the you know, saying? Like, kind of like, blessed? Why are you asking this question? <laughs> right? But I think sometimes step back and be like, I think I know what this word means, but I need to step back and make sure that I understand what the word is. I try to do this all the time with church words, or just Bible words, because we bring so much presuppositions to a lot of these words. To be able to just jar it and make it look a little bit different for us can be helpful sometimes. So what does poverty in spirit mean? How is somebody blessed if they're poor? Like, living in, in a constant awareness of I am nothing without that. Like nothing. To me, it's humility. Mm-hmm. Like a standard of humility. Anybody else? Any other thoughts? I thought Sebastian's was really, really good. Just the the knowledge of your of your need. I heard my son. Sorry. <laughs> I think of those saints who have been praying for forty years, and like right before they're about to die and they are asked what would you like for this to be different and they say I'd like to have another 40 years to keep your pension yeah <laughs> so, can you imagine getting to that place where like I don't want to die just yet because I need to repent more repent more <laughs> that is a kind of poverty of spirit of just this is not groveling in the sense of like this kind of weakness. Nietzsche has this criticism of Christians, right? Like they're just spineless, weak. That's not what poverty of spirit is. It goes back to that what I was saying. Like we're a creature, and the one who's poor in spirit realizes, as you said, it's almost actually a direct quote from Hopko. I don't know. I'm sure you didn't even know that. The one is nothing except by the grace of God. Like that is what it means to be poor in spirit. Like I'm nothing without God. I literally don't exist without God, right? I cannot sustain my existence. And I don't mean like eating. And like, it's just like I don't exist without him. So this condition is something. This isn't like a to make yourself feel bad that like I'm not worth anything. That's a completely, that's not what poverty of spirit is talking about. You are made in the image of God. You are worthy to exist, period, because you exist, right? Because God made you. But poverty of spirit is not a denial of that, of this kind of like thinking that you're a piece of crap or something, right? This is, I am nothing without God. Were you going to say something? I was going to say, I think this is very indicative also of kind of the upside down kingdom of God, where the world elevates like the powerful, the confident, the rich, whereas, you know, Jesus had such a soft you know soft spot in his heart for the forgotten you know so i think this is a reflection of that absolutely because the opposite you can think of all of these like cursed is right and jesus doesn't say this but like blessed is the poor in spirit well cursed is the one who thinks that they got everything figured out right Mm -hmm. they're not blessed 
In fact, that is an endless pursuit. Have fun. Because <laughs> guess what? Nobody can be, I mean, this is always this pursuit of like, you know, get money or die trying and all that, like this kind of like, yeah, but who, who, there's some, we, even in the world, we know this, right? This is basic wisdom in the world. This isn't especially Christian wisdom. Know that like money does not give you everything. Buddha tells you that. Like this is just, we know this. But it's even more to like, not just to realize I'm more than money, of the, but to like know I am nothing without God. This is like a deeper spiritual truth than that. So what's next? We have blessed mourning. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Does this mean that Christians need to be going around sullen-eyed, a little weepy? Again, back to Nietzsche, like like these groveling, pathetic Christians. Full of guilt. Is this what blessed mourning is? What What would you say blessed mourning is? They're recognizing your stature compared to God and your mourning for your own lawlessness. So it flows from that. A lot of the fathers actually see this a lot as a ladder. They see the Beatitudes as like, not that it's like, you get important spirit, and then you mourn, and then you do this. That's my good. Then you do this. Like, it's not that, but it's that all of these things, like, you cannot mourn. You cannot be a peacemaker if you don't have poverty of spirit, right? These are kind of like, I always use the Russian doll thing. You know what I'm talking about? The, these inner, sparse little, yeah, the nesting dolls. Like, all of these things nest within each other. So if you are poor in spirit, you are going to mourn for your sins. You're going to be mourning for your lawlessness, the way Tim just said that. Like, you're going to be mourning for the gap. So there's like this kind of ontological difference where like God is God and I am not God. And then there's the, now this is like, and I'm a sinner. Not only am I not God and I'm completely dependent upon him, I'm also a mess, right? Like how Hopko says, the poor in spirit know how foolish and sad it is to be caught by sin, to be victimized by falsehood and evil, to be wedded to destruction and death. Blessed mourning for sin is essential to the spiritual life. But in the victory of Christ, it is not morbid or joyless. On the contrary, it is filled with hope, with gladness, and with light. And then has a few uh, he had quotes from Paul, where Paul talks about two different kinds of repentance. I'm sure all of us have experienced this in our lives. Uh, there's something about having children, too, that, like, I feel like I have to talk about this all the time. Like, say you're sorry. And you're like, sorry! <laughs> Versus, like, yep. I'm sorry. Right? Like, there is a kind of repentance of, like, man, I got caught like my hands in the cookie jar and like I'm sorry what I'm really sorry about is that you caught me <laughs> I'm not actually sorry so there's this kind of like repentance that's not actual sorrow and then there's like a mourning like I done messed up <laughs> right and that is what Paul talks about there's godly grief that brings repentance that leads to salvation and then there's worldly grief that's just kind of crocodile tears right or you could say just crying because you have no hope, because you have no faith, right? But there, there is real mourning and repentance. Uh, this is very counterintuitive to the world, this idea that we can mourn. Mourning can actually cause joy. Um, here are some quotes from St. John Climacus. I appreciate that Hopko weaves in some of the fathers here. 
Mourning according to God is sadness of soul and the disposition of a sorrowing heart which ever madly seeks for that which it thirsts. That mad seeking that like I don't have what I'm supposed to have and I need to seek it out. Mourning is a golden spur in a soul which is stripped of all attachment and ties. Keep a firm hold of the blessed joy grief. This is something in the language of the fathers. This like, uh, well, I think what, uh, I like a better translation: joyful sorrow. This kind of joyful sorrow of holy mourning, and do not stop working at it until it raises you high above the things of this world and presents you pure to Christ. The fruit of morbid mourning is vainglory and self-esteem, but the fruit of blessed mourning is comfort. I kind of think about the difference today in the gospel of like Jesus who retreats and goes to his father and like the disciples who are kind of like they retreat with him they're following him but they're like a little bit more concerned about the food than they are about like having grounded themselves in Christ and being able to say like you can provide there's this like mourning that Christ presents and then this mourning that the apostle the disciples present this morning Do you have any questions or, yeah? Uh, could it be also for, by extension, mourning for the city in the world? Like when, when Christ was entering into Jerusalem, he cried because of the state of the city. I've heard about some saints that they're always crying because of how the evil is at, like, present and acting in the world. So I think there, as long as there is that basic, because there's always a temptation to start looking at other people, Right, and I know that's not what you're saying, but I think this is always a temptation when we want to mourn or weep or pray for the world because our salvation is found in our brother, right? Mm-hmm. And that we need to pray for the world. Uh, there's always a temptation there in that if we're not careful. I'm just talking about all the weak of us, and maybe it's just me here. Uh, and that to just like really point out all of the faults of the world <laughs> and like mourn over, and then like and it runs over into that kind of what I was talking about, like talking about it as opposed to like attending to the things that I know of and praying on behalf of the world interceding for the world so I'm absolutely not denying what you're saying I'm just saying there can always be this challenge this is so easy if you get on the internet and you see what do Christians mostly do on the internet argue. they argue and complain about the world yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a massive part of it when you see others remember that I think Paul said Jesus came in the world and said, sinners are to mine first. Mm-hmm. You actually are reflecting it back on yourself to see your own sinfulness. And that's what the saints who are weeping for the world, they're actually seeing a, a lesser evil version of themselves. Right. And so the weeping is, oh my goodness, I am worse. even worse than that. So i got to pray for them and maybe they'll you know, mm-hmm. pray for me because they're not as bad as I am. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's that this is that topsy-turviness that like that you're pointing to is this just kind of like who intuitively wants to say that they're the worst person in the world about things I bet money almost anything that you struggle with you can think of people I'm not gonna name it, you can think of people who struggle with things worse than you do and it's very easy for us to get outside of like what we need to be repenting of in order to like worry about, complain about, critique the world. I'm not saying in all that, therefore, the church never needs to say something about the, the state of things or that there are situations or 
illegalities or things that should be illegal or you know that that's not the same thing but there is definitely a, a priority uh, Saint Sophroni talks about this of this kind of inverted pyramid where all of us are we're all related to each other and Adam I don't mean related like we all actually are related to each other but I don't mean just like relations like cousins and third cousins but like all of us are here goes the big word again ontologically connected we're all an atom together we're all humans together right and so therefore my sin affects all of you there's no this is very different from the world talks about sin and sin is just this kind of like well they don't talk there's not a vocabulary for sin it's basically you do whatever you want as long as you don't hurt anybody (laughs) when does that end who defines that who defines that because almost always it's like, here's uh, a family, and the mom and dad can do whatever they want as long as they don't hurt the kids. And everybody else from the house had it just like, uh, <laughs> they're hurting the kids. I don't mean physically. I just mean like they're lost. They're doing their own thing. They're pursuing their best self now, right? But their best self now, like, what it really is is to be a mom or to be a husband or to, like, and to attend to what is really there. Uh, there is not the sense of like we're all indiscreet like monads or individuals that every once in a while we like crash into each other and this is the problem no that's not why do we have war it is because of much bigger trends of sin than just because there's like greedy people somewhere or something it's not that simple it is why do we have fights why do we have falling out why do we have all of the dishevelment of human society this is just this is true in the church. We have all sorts of trouble in church. I don't mean that like we have like knockout bar, but like people's feelings get hurt. Like somebody says something, or somebody's having a bad day, or somebody like walks past somebody or doesn't see somebody, and the other person takes that offense or is hurt by that, even though the person had all of these little things and faults. And this is why we have to like be pursuing Christ to be rooted in Him to be able. To, how should I say this? Suffer each other, and I don't mean that negatively. But that's just what love is. Like if you're if you're crucifying yourself to somebody, if you are in a relationship with somebody, you just know this already in your families. Even if you're not married to somebody, or even if you're not long-term dating, or you know, serious about somebody, you know that real relationships with people is really hard, and you gotta love them. That doesn't mean you don't put boundaries sometimes because some people are very unhealthy and you need to put some boundaries up. (laughs) You don't become a doormat for people. That's not what God asks of you. I was going to ask, it's a very loaded question. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for letting me know that you're cocking the gun here. (laughs) Well, maybe just a layered question. Sure. So, on the one hand, you have this, this idea of the morning, godly sorrow, being in a state of repentance for our sins, even the extreme of like self-flagellation, you know. Um, but then also, especially in Protestant movements today, there's hyper grace where they even teach that guilt has no place. You know what I mean? Which is, I never agreed with that. That always struck me as wrong. But... Where does God's grace in seeing ourselves, how he does see us, Mm -hmm. um, 
ultimately forgiven. Mm-hmm. How do you reconcile those those two mindsets? So let me, I, I, I understand what you're saying, so let me try to spin this out. I think there's always attention. And I think the way the scriptures presents things is attention. It is very easy for us to have a cheap grace. Mm-hmm. Who doesn't want to always already be forgiven? That is a reality. The question is, how do we actually apply that selves that to our lives, and what does that mean for us? I saw a meme the other day. Memes, they're like little peepholes into reality here, right? Mm. This meme that was basically, God loves you already, so it doesn't really, this is my rendition, so it's not exactly how I said it, but it's almost like it doesn't really matter what you do because God's got your back because he loves you. I go and I step back. And I'm like, if this was interpreted in three different layers, I could say that's right. But the reality of what that basically means is this cheap grace, which is basically goes back to that moralistic therapeutic deism thing. God always already supports whatever I decide I'm going to do, and will just it's like God, the overbearing mother, who's going to come behind. Not just but like, oh, you made a, made a mess. I'm going to clean that up for you. Mm-hmm. That's not the God of Scripture. There is... Uh, so, guilt is something that is good for us to actually see things correctly. This is probably the importance of spiritual direction and uh, confession. Is being able to... Because we're very easily can get neurotic about things. We very easily can get into our own little cycle of justification or self-flagellation or self-beating up and we need to be able to go to confession and be able to, like, I'm struggling with this thing I don't feel like, and to be able to hear like you're okay, like God loves you even in the midst of the struggle don't give up the struggle, but like you are loved by God so some of it for orthodoxy is accepting the reality that you're a sinner not morbidly not say neurotically that word has got its own baggage but like um, but that has faith and hope and joy in Christ who forgives who seeks our good who is the lover of mankind uh, but that our struggle with sin is going to be something that is always going to be there so there's this tension that we are striving towards him because I think what happens, you can co- you can collapse it in two different directions, is why I say tension. You can collapse it to the cheap grace, where it's basically, it doesn't really matter, always and already. So you basically stop struggling with sin. Right? right? This is kind of like once saved, always saved in Baptist circles. Right? Then you can get to this kind of legalistic Pelagian type thing, which is kind of like what I grew up with, Church of Christ. <laughs> which is this kind of like, you have to be perfect. And if you're not already perfect, God's waiting for you to be perfect. Because there's not a sense of grace. Mm-hmm. So that's the is long. Yeah, it's, so. it's a legalism. It's this kind of like, as long as I have, and it almost, it kills the heart. It creates this like system that you are more faithful to a system than you are actually to God. And it's very easy to become self-righteous. Yeah. So, I was kind of to this, so... I mean, it, it, what you're describing too is a really good reason to to have a confessor yep. to go to and and develop a good relationship with your confessor and go off him. Not not just so that you can 
be forgiven his sins, but I mean, a, a, a priest that I went to for a long time for confession, he, he would he would always really keep me from despairing because don't despair. Yep. Like, like um, you know, this this is going to be all right. Don't despair over this. And and it's sometimes that's what you need to need to hear as well. Because it's very easy for us to get into monologues of self-deprecation, self-flagellation, and we need the priest to be able to speak the words of absolution, to be able to speak words of encouragement, to be able to get outside of our heads. That's part of what the confession does, is this kind of corporate <laughs> God, it's not my word, uh, it's my words, but Christ is speaking through me to you, saying, your sins are forgiven, and we need that. This is why we have the sacraments, that Christ is with us in the sacraments, because if you don't have the sacraments, you really are left on, in this eternal world of like self having to self pastor, self medicate usually <laughs> and it can go bad alright we're starting to run out of time here but that was a great question did it help? Okay. <laughs> you? That's a great answer. Thank okay. you. <laughs> I'm just reflecting what the church does. I think this is this is always a challenge, and it's why we need. There's certain things that it's not just like, oh, here's the answer. It's like, well, here's the presence of the priest or of the church to be able to be alongside of us through those things. Because I th really think one of the challenges, at least what I experienced in a lot of Protestantism, is you really thro are thrown back on yourself for everything you are the ultimate arbiter of what even the pastor says because you get to decide whether it's true or not right you are your own pastor there's other forms there are forms of protestantism that aren't that individualistic but a lot of it is so we need confession we need the church that's why in those definitions of like orthodox spirituality is an ecclesial it is a church why we go to the saints why we know this is a corporate activity that we're not just thrown on our own resources and our own abilities that's why we have this really flowery language about the mother of god you are my only hope like we have very poetic ways of talking about things that are we as a culture don't talk like that unless we're listening to songs and suddenly we can get very rhapsodic and like metaphorical but like in our day-to-day -day life we don't we're not flowery as a people at least, maybe Spanish speakers are different, but like for English, for gringos, like we're very matter of fact and utilitarian. Is that your experience? Well, Abby did say a lot of times down there that we as Colombians are very cheesy, yeah. sentimental in a way yeah. that we're not. We're mm -hmm. we are. That, I think there are certain Celts are a little bit different, <laughs> but like Anglo Americans or like Anglo American or like Germanic struggle yeah. can struggle mightily with this stuff. Mm -hmm. Just like Greeks and Italians, if you go to Southern Mediterranean, it's a different world. There's an expressiveness that, like, the North Atlantic people are just. <laughs> I teach Jenny about being German. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. Oh, that's very German. I mean, my name is Greece Sun. Like, I am very Germanic Viking. Like, that is, like. So, I, some of this, I think, is that cultural aspect of how Orthodox spirituality and how our. A lot of us having, even if we didn't grow up Protestant, you're just in that milieu. So you just are kind of like by default Protestant, even if you never went into a Protestant church. And so that has all sorts of baggage that can come with that. All right.
right, we got five minutes. Let's do meekness at least and get to meekness. Reader Gregory, what's meekness? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. What is it? What does the beatitude say? Meek shall. What 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 happens to the meek? The Inherit the earth. Does that help? Uh, <laughs> it's actually a quote from the entire psalm. The meek shall inherit the earth is a quote from the psalm. Uh, I can, I can. Who's the meekest man of the Bible? That's, let's, Jesus. Let's put him aside. But who is said to be the meekest? The meekest in the Bible. Uh, Might be somebody that you. Nope. Joseph. Nope. No. Moses. Yep. Mm. Moses. Is that kind of counterintuitive in a little bit? Well, he when literally asked God to send someone else <laughs> when, yeah. when approached. Yeah. So meekness means to, I'll, I'll use what Hopka says, I think he does a, a great job of defining it. Gentle, kind, to be empty of all selfishness and earthly ambition. It means, in a word, never to return evil for evil, but always in everything to overcome evil by good. In the psalm in the Orthodox Study Bible, it actually it, uh, translated says the gentle will inherit the earth, which led me to be like, yeah. "Whoa, that's what makes me." That yeah. Was like my yeah, you get these if you step back because you think that's that's one of those churchy words, meek. Ah, oh, they're very meek. And it's like we don't use that word very much either. Do you ever call somebody meek? Dorothy calls herself that when she's talking to the wizard. That's, that's, <laughs> like, that's like one of the places where it is where it is used. But yeah, that's. It's not thrown around that much. We don't use it. Americans aren't very meek. I think that's probably part of what it is. We're brash. If you go to another country, you can find Americans by just listening. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah we're, we're loud. We're loudest in the restaurant. We're the loudest. Right? <laughs> Gentle, kind. I mean, I think we're very, I think Americans are actually pretty kind. But, like, there is this, we manifest destiny. <laughs> we own the earth. Like, we are the world's police force. Like, the. I'm not trying to overdo this, but there's just a sense of like meekness is probably one of the areas which we're really weak in. Uh-huh. Spirit. Yeah. Yep. Meekness means to distrust and reject every thought and action of external coercion and violence, which in any case can never produce fruitful, genuine, lasting results. Meekness is to have the firm, calm conviction that the good is more powerful than evil and that the good ultimately is always victorious. That's why the meek inherit the earth. Because whose is the earth and the fullness thereof? It's God's, right? So, if you are poor in spirit, mourning for your sins, you are uh, then uh, going to be meek as well. Because you are going to have your trust and your hope and your faith in God. And not in the princes and sons of men, right? Not in horses and chariots and fighter bombers or whatever. So here's another quote from John Climacus. Meekness is an unchangeable state of mind which remains the same in honor and dishonor. So no matter if you're being honored or dishonored, the mind stays the same. Meekness is the rock overlooking the sea of irritability, which breaks all the waves that dash against it, remaining itself unmoved. Meekness is the buttress of patience, the mother of love, and the foundation of wisdom. For it is said, the Lord will teach the meek his way, from Psalm 24. It prepares the forgiveness of sins. It is boldness in prayer, an abode of the Holy Spirit. But to whom shall I look, says the Lord, to him who is meek and quiet and trembles at my word? 
In meek hearts the Lord finds rest, but a turbulent soul is the seat of the devil. lot to repent there about. I don't know about you guys, but for me, that's... Uh, this is why it's good to revisit. I, I suggest reading the Sermon on the Mount pretty regularly, because if you were to just slowly, if you just, the meat on here of the earth, you could take that for a month and just come back to it every day and just be like, how can I be more meek? What are ways in which I am not the rock in the sea of irritability, but I am one of the largest waves in the sea of irritability, right? Like, the deep is broken up and I'm everywhere. I'm not the rock. I am not patient. I am not meek. I want to force my way. I want. I, it doesn't. If somebody has said something against me, I'm ready to turn around and smack them. I'm not ready to turn my my cheek. I want to turn their cheek. Right. You can see from this ladder the way that the fathers talk about it, that hunger and thirsting for righteousness, to strive for mercy, to look for purity of heart, to uh, find the peace of God, and then desire for that peace to be spread amongst others. To expect to be persecuted. That's one of the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Right? You're going to need all of the things before. Right? Reliance on God. Mourning for your sins. Realizing your, your sinfulness. The meekness that is required to be that rock. Right? In the midst of those who might be saying things that are utterly ridiculous, false, or just slander. Right? And at the end, and I think this is one of the harder ones for Christians, is... To be joyful. There is a lot to be said, and I know we experientially know this, for those who have joy, a basic joy and hope, because their joy, a Christian's joy, is not this kind of low-level, like, I'm happy, right? I'm getting ice cream this afternoon or something, right? Like, that's like my four-year-old. But that this joy that, like, life is, there's zest to life because life is meaningful because I believe in the resurrection of the dead. (laughs) Because Jesus Christ is risen from the dead and he is given, no matter what happens, God has triumphed. He's already triumphed and he's going to triumph and that's just it. So there's just this basic steadiness of joy that is to come into a Christian's life. Now, kind of reflecting on it, like, we don't all embody these things all the time. But there is, in striving to look, and this is what I suggest, is like, take one of these things and focus. The fathers talk a lot about how all of the virtues, and we'll be talking about uh, asceticism, prayer of the heart, and then we'll be talking about virtues as well. Uh, They're all connected together. So if you were to seek poverty of spirit, say, or you chose meekness, that meekness, if you're striving for meekness, it's going to create poverty of heart. It's going to create some mourning in you because when you mess up, you're going to be like turning to God and saying like, I need you, right? You're going to be hungry and thirsting for right. It all is connected together. So if there's one particular beatitude, one reality that is particularly missing or needs some attention, some tuning up, that is something I suggest the fathers talk about. Like focus on that thing for a while and the other virtues, the other things come in its trail if you focus on that thing. So, any questions about this portrait of orthodox spirituality that we find in the Beatitudes? 
Lord, now let us have thy servant depart in peace according to thy word for mine eyes, this and thy salvation which thou hast prepared before the face of all people, the light to enlighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Father. Thank you, guys.